This episode, we continue talking about the idea of equity and how our cultural obsession with equity affects how both Christians and non-Christians view the Bible. My name is Jacqueline, and I'm just an American. Over the last few weeks, I have been talking a lot about the philosophy of equity. American culture is moving away from our fundamental principles of equality of opportunity and moving towards a focus on equality of outcome, which they have termed equity. I have been spending so much time talking about this topic because I believe this general philosophy explains so many of the shifts we are seeing in our nation and also so many of the problems. I have talked about how this focus on uniformity of outcome has influenced how we think about gender roles, how we view economic policies, and the conversation about race relations. We have come into this place where we view any discrepancy in people's lives or situations as the obvious result of inequality of opportunity or discrimination in some form or other. We look at single factors such as gender or race when coming to our conclusions without taking into account any of the other very relevant factors. We have, whether consciously or subconsciously, redefined the word equal to mean uniform or identical. We view any situation where people are not exactly the same as somehow problematic. I believe this is an extremely misguided worldview, but it is a worldview, a dominant one right now, and it has become the lens with which we view everything in the world around us. I think a lot of people forget, or never think about it in the first place, the fact that we do have a lens with which we view the world. That lens is shaped by many things, the culture we live in, our parents, our own personal life experiences, and in our human selfishness, we believe that the lens we see things through is perfectly clear, not tainted by any of these things, but able to see things perfectly clearly as they are. But this isn't actually true. The lens through which we see the world actually is very influential in how we see the world. As I've already talked about in previous episodes, it affects how we view gender, race, and economics. And it also affects how we view another important thing, the Bible and our interpretation of it. This obviously applies differently to people, whether they are Christians or whether they are non-believers. At the end of the day, faith is and must be a choice. So that right there is a really important starting point. When we look at scripture, are we sincerely trying to understand it? Or are we looking at it with the intention of disproving or deriding it? If you have made a decision right off the bat that God is not real, the Bible is just some old book written by a bunch of crazy people, and anyone who believes in it is an idiot or a loser, then you are going to find proofs to support that predetermined view. One thing I find very interesting about some people who don't consider themselves religious is that they speak as though they are the experts on the Christian faith and on the Bible. I'm always entertained by the people who never go to church, who lecture Americans about how we really don't need to go to church, and how we should be totally fine with the churches being forcefully closed during COVID because we don't need it. I'm always entertained by the people who don't practice the faith or read the Bible, who will cite verses to try and condemn the Christian they are talking to. Theologians spend their entire lives studying the Bible and the history of biblical events. Devout Christians pray, read the Bible daily, attend church where they hear their priest or pastor talk about what scripture means, read books and listen to podcasts to try and delve into the meanings and messages behind it. And none of us claim to have perfect knowledge of God's will or messages. We are constantly learning, always a work in progress. So when someone who doesn't believe, doesn't pray, doesn't read the Bible, doesn't go to church, doesn't listen to preachers or theologians, doesn't read books on theology— When those people go to Christians and try to lecture us on the meaning of scripture, we just kind of laugh. 
not to be disrespectful, but there is a serious credibility problem there, coupled with an arrogance in thinking you understand what you are talking about. I have never read one page of the Quran. I have not studied Hinduism or Buddhism. And even though as a Christian, I know a decent amount about Judaism, I don't practice it. I don't think I have ever in my life assertively stated opinions on any of those faiths or practices. And I definitely have never done so directly to someone of that faith, assuming I know more than they do. But every day we are told what the Bible says by people who only use it to attack and who do not have sincere intentions of understanding. There are many ways in which our cultural lenses cause us to misinterpret biblical teachings. And that is true for both believers and non-believers, but in different ways. For non-believers, it is very easy to cherry pick verses in the Bible to support the idea that it preaches things that are abhorrent. One of the favorite tactics of people who seek to attack the Bible is to point to a story or verse where something bad is discussed and say the Bible is promoting it. For example, people will often point to the stories about Abraham or Jacob and say, look, those men took multiple wives or concubines, therefore, the Bible is promoting polygamy. Actually, no. The Bible is simply telling the story of what happened in the lives of those men. At that time, it was culturally accepted for men to take multiple wives. Since when is telling a story equal to promoting something? In the famous Jane Austen book Pride and Prejudice, the youngest daughter ran off to live with a man before she was married. It was a part of the story. Would anyone argue that Jane Austen was trying to promote young girls running off to live with men unmarried? Of course not. Just because something was mentioned in a story or just because it was a cultural practice at the time doesn't mean that it is being promoted or encouraged or condoned. In fact, when we read the story of Abraham or the story of Jacob, we see that those men actually had a lot of headaches and heartaches due to the fact that they had more than one wife. It caused a lot of problems for them. But if you are seeking to deliberately misinterpret these stories or if you are not sincerely looking to understand the messages, it is easy to point to them and say, the Bible promotes polygamy. Another way that people misread the Bible due to our cultural lenses is on the often cited issue of slavery. Many claim that the Bible promotes slavery. And how can we claim this book is the word of a good and loving God if it promotes slavery? Well, there are a few things here. First of all, the slavery the Bible discusses isn't like the slavery we think of as Americans. We imagine the slavery that was practiced here, the slavery we grew up learning about, people kidnapped from their homelands or born into it, people stuck in that state forever. The slave owners able to do anything they want to the slaves, including beat them, rape them, or even kill them. But that is not the slavery that the Bible is referring to. If one is knowledgeable about the historical context, one would understand the slavery in the Bible is more of an indentured servitude. A person would choose to work as an indentured servant either to pay off a debt or to make reparations for a wrong or a crime. It was often for a set, limited time, not for their entire lives. And what the Bible does is it sets, for lack of a better term, the standards for a more humane working condition for those people. It demands that the servants are given one day of rest every week, for example. It demands that no one is held in servitude longer than seven years. Now, you may hear that and still not like it. You may think the idea of indentured servitude isn't a good one. But I think anyone who is being intellectually honest would admit that there is a huge difference from that and the slavery that was practiced in the United States, which is where our American brains instantly go when we hear the word slavery. Another big one that non-believers love to talk about is the fact that the Christian faith is misogynistic. As a woman, that one hits hard. Am I really practicing a faith that puts women down? That deems us less worthy than men? The answer is no, not at all. They point to the fact that in most Christian churches, women are not allowed to be priests or pastors. 
In some cases, we aren't allowed to hold certain positions of leadership or power. And they say that is just terrible. But here's the truth. Our problem with this stems from our cultural lens. In our culture, we believe that if something is not the same, then there is an injustice somewhere. Saying that men and women are made to fulfill different roles in a society is considered terrible, unfair, and just very, very wrong. But is it? The view of the church is that men and women are made to fulfill different roles, but that doesn't mean that one has a higher value than another. It is not the church that says the leadership positions are more valuable. It is the world that says that. In worldly terms, power and leadership and rank are indicators of value and worth. But in Christian terms, this is not true. In fact, the opposite is true. When in the creation story, God makes Eve and calls her to be a helper to Adam, the world takes that to mean that she is Adam's assistant. She is less than him. But we forget that there are many different verses in the Bible where God refers to himself as a helper, as our helper. Is God diminishing his own value? Is he putting his value as less than that of human beings? Of course not. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says very clearly who are going to be worthy in the eyes of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus never says, blessed are the kings and queens. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the leaders. In fact, the Christian faith puts a profound emphasis on the value of women in many different ways. Who is the first person who ever preached the good news of the gospel? Mary. One of the most revered figures in the Catholic Church is Mary, Mother of God. The very first person in the Bible that the resurrected Jesus appeared to was Mary Magdalene. And this is a really big deal when we consider that at that time, in that culture, the word of a woman didn't carry nearly as much weight as that of a man. Yet Jesus chose to show himself to her first. Through the tale of Jesus' passion, he was betrayed and denied by his male disciples, but it clearly talks about the women who followed and supported and mourned for him. And the Bible has plenty of stories about female heroism and goodness. Mary, Hannah, Ruth, Esther, Deborah, they are revered as heroes, not for doing the things that men do, but for doing things that women do. Not for bringing to the world the benefits that men bring, but the benefits that women bring. Not for doing things that the world deems valuable and important, but for doing things that God deems valuable and important. God made men and women different, designed to fulfill different roles in this world. Different, but of equal value. It is our world that has decided that the worth and value that women bring to it isn't good enough, isn't worthy enough. It is the world that has decided that the way God made women, the things that we were designed to contribute, isn't good enough. The world decided that, and then the world points to the Bible to say, look at how much the Bible hates women. But what about the famous verse from Ephesians 5.22 that everyone loves to cite? Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. As a 21st century woman, we hear that and we absolutely cringe. I'm sorry, what? Be subordinate to my husband? Submit to him in all things? I don't think so. What could be more misogynistic than the idea that a wife is subordinate to her husband? Well, first of all, we need to read the entire section to take the overall context. Ephesians 5.21, the very previous verse, starts off by saying, be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is how he starts the section by talking about marriage, by commanding to be subordinate to one another. This is what the full section says. Be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. He himself, the savior of the body. 
As the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word that he might present himself to the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So also husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife love him, loves himself. For no one hates his own flesh, but rather nourishes and cherishes it, even as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Our society gets stuck on the wives submit to your husband's part because that is what our cultural focus is on, the importance of women and men being equal. The same. But we conveniently ignore what instructions are given to husbands. Husbands are called to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. So how did Christ love the church? Well, he lived and died solely for the church. Every single thing Christ did on this earth, every step he took, every word he said, all the way leading up to laying down his life for no other reason than that he loved us so much. It was all done for his church, for us. Husbands are called to love their wives as their own bodies. This is a pretty tall order that our husbands are commanded to do. People who decide that the main takeaway from this passage is that wives have to do whatever their husbands say and that husbands can do whatever they want to their wives are being obtuse and deliberately misinterpreting it. It says no such thing. What we are supposed to take away from these lines is that husbands and wives are supposed to live for each other. We are supposed to do all things for the well-being of our spouse. And also, you can't have one side of that coin without the other. You cannot have a woman submitting to her husband if he is not loving her as Christ loved the church. And a man cannot love his wife as he should if she doesn't respect him. God made us. He knows how we are and how we function. Husbands need their wives' respect. It is profoundly important to them. And wives need their husbands' love. It is profoundly important to us. And yes, men are the heads of the household. But that doesn't mean husbands shouldn't listen to their wives' opinions and respect her wishes. No one would want their opinions and wishes and views to be ignored. And God is telling men to treat their wives as though they are themselves. In other words, treat her how you would want to be treated. That means no abuse, either physical or emotional. That means no adultery. We even have this added commandment for that. That means no disrespect or degradation. The reason why these commands are given to men and women differently is because God is actually appealing to the typical flaws in each of us, specifically and directly. Many men, not all, but many, find it really hard to be the spiritual leaders of their households that God calls them to be. Many men would rather leave the praying and the Bible teachings to their wives. Men have a tendency to be less communicative and definitely less so when it comes to their feelings, so they can find it harder to put themselves in a place to lead discussions in their families about faith. And there are plenty of men who actually would rather leave the big decision-making to their wives, not out of a, a respect or a reverence for their wives, but to cop out on that responsibility. God knows these flaws that men tend to have, and he is calling on them to be better and rise above those flaws. At the same time, God knows the flaws that women tend to have. Women tend to always think we know the best way to do things, especially in the house. How many times do we ask our husbands to load the dishwasher only to rearrange it later? Or ask them to get the kids dressed only to say, you chose that outfit? And it is the unfortunate reality that women have a tendency in our frustrations or resentments towards our husbands to manifest that in a loss of respect for them. We can see it in the countless TV sitcoms that portray the husbands as the bumbling idiots who would be totally lost if not for their smart wife who has it all together. God is calling on us to be better than that. 
He is reminding us to respect our husbands, which means allowing them to take the reins sometimes when we would probably rather do so ourselves. For anyone listening to this who says, that is so sexist, making generalizations like that about men and women, I would say this. Obviously, there are exceptions to these rules, but I have observed and spoken to enough men and women in my life to know that these tendencies are very real and accurate. And if we are honest about them, and we actually seek to understand these verses, then they don't seem misogynistic at all. They seem like pretty good advice for a happy marriage. But if we only look at these verses through our current cultural lens, which denies the fact that men and women are different, which demands that we pretend there are no differences between the sexes at all, then of course these these verses would seem problematic. But because of our cultural norms, we rush to the conclusion that since the lines are telling women to be subordinate, that means that she is essentially the slave to her husband. It is our obsession with the idea that everything between men and women needs to be exactly the same that causes so many people to misunderstand these verses. It is our obsession with putting value on power and authority that causes us to believe that the Bible is degrading or undervaluing women. The Bible doesn't do that. God clearly shows throughout the entire book the value he has for women. It is our cultural norms that have disrespected and degraded women. It is those norms that have decided that if a woman isn't acting like a man, doing what a man would do, she is somehow less worthy. Those are some of the ways that non-believers misunderstand biblical teachings due to the cultural lenses that we look through. And of course, there are many, many more examples that we could go into. But Christians actually do the same thing. I recently read a really fascinating book on this very topic. It is called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes by Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien. I highly recommend it for anyone who is a person of faith who wants to achieve a better understanding of the Bible. Because there are a lot of ways in which our cultural blinders can hinder us from full understanding. For example, the individualistic attitudes that we have as Americans, and just Westerners in general, can cause people to read the Bible and want to focus solely on how each Bible verse applies directly to me. We sometimes put ourselves in a story of the Bible that we read and say, oh wait, I'm supposed to do what? For example... There is a passage in Numbers where the daughters of a man named Zelophehad went to Moses to complain about inheritance. They said that since they didn't have any brothers, when their father died, the land and property should belong to the daughters. The only complaint anyone had about this was the fact that since when a woman would marry, she would go and live with her spouse and everything of hers would then belong to her spouse. If those women married a man from another tribe, then it would break up their property and boundaries. At that time, God was working to establish his people, the Israelites, and a part of that plan was to have the different tribes of Israel. So the solution Moses came to was that if a woman inherited, they could only marry within their tribe. The woman agreed, and that became a rule. Now, it would be absolutely absurd for me to try to insert myself into this Bible passage and say that I should only marry among my tribe or which really came down to my extended family. In fact, in America in 2021, that is greatly looked down upon. The story was about a specific group of people in a specific time in history where their situation and their cultural norms led them down that path. We are not called to make that about us. Another one that some Christians use is the fact that Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, tortured, and crucified as a justification for extreme pacifism. I've spoken to people who believe that there are absolutely no circumstances under which the use of force against another human being is justified, not even in self-defense. I even went so far to ask one of these people if if someone was about to murder their child and they could stop it by using force, would they? And they said no. 
And they point to the fact that Jesus allowed himself to be crucified as justification for that. But I believe that is a twisting of scripture by inserting yourself where you do not belong. Jesus knew he had to be killed the way he was because he needed to be sacrificed for all of us. Are you Jesus? Do you need to be sacrificed for the salvation of all mankind? No, I I don't think you are. They point to Jesus telling Peter to shield his sword and the phrase, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But they ignore that Jesus immediately in the same breath tells Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and at once he will send 12 legions of angels? But then how will the scriptures be fulfilled? This was the path Jesus had to walk. He could have defended himself at any time. And the reason he didn't was because his path was to fulfill the scriptures. This philosophy is also once again cherry picking. It is picking out one line or one thing to justify the belief. And you ignore all the other Bible verses about battles and people taking down opposing armies according to God's will. David killing Goliath and on and on. When reading scripture, we should ask, what does this verse mean for the people who it is about? What is the historical context? What type of literature is it? Is it supposed to be taken literally or is it a parable or even a poem? The Bible is made up of a lot of different types of literature. And then once we have those things figured out, what message can I take from it? Another example of this that really stuck out at me can be found in our common interpretation of Romans 2.28, which is one of my favorite verses. It says, We know that all things work for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's a beautiful verse that fills the listener with hope. If I love God, everything is going to work out for me. But sometimes we take this to mean that it's all going to be good according to our wishes or standards. And that isn't always the case. What this verse means is that in the end, in the big picture, all things will work out according to God's ultimate will and goodness. And yes, we will all be okay. But it might not come on our terms. And it might not come in this life, but in the next. If we don't understand that, It would be very easy to actually be turned away from faith over this verse. The loss of a loved one, war, poverty, genocide, the collapse of a marriage, a severe and painful illness. All of these things happen to people. If we misinterpret this verse to mean God is telling me it's going to work out as I wish for me personally and my heart's desires, then it would be really easy to say God is not faithful. He wasn't faithful when he allowed my child to die or when he gave me this terrible disease. But that isn't what the verse means. It is still a beautiful verse filled with comfort, but we must understand it correctly to derive that comfort from it. Another example of one way that both believers and non-believers alike misread the Bible can be found in the super woke claim, Jesus was a socialist. Those who believe in socialism love to cite this against Christians who don't want to accept that philosophy as a way to basically guilt us into it. But there are few phrases that scream, I'm misreading the Bible more than Jesus was a socialist. First of all, socialism is not the act of giving to those in need. I've talked about what socialism really is, and the idea that socialism is just charity is totally wrong. It's not. Charity is charity. Socialism is government redistribution. Jesus does call on his followers to give to those in need, to give plentifully, generously, and joyfully. He calls on us to really reevaluate our lives and figure out where we can live more simply so that we can give more to others. This is absolutely a command that we have as Christians, but at no point does Jesus ever promote anything that remotely looks like socialism. Jesus speaks directly to us, directly to the people. He doesn't tell the people to pay more money in taxes so that the government can care for the poor. He tells us to care for the poor. 
He never went to the political leadership of the time and told them that they needed to take more money from the people and especially from the wealthy people so that the government can take care of the poor. That is not a thing that we have any evidence that ever happened. And that component, that government-involved component, is what makes socialism socialism. Christianity also specifically differentiates between charity, which is the willful giving, and stealing, which is the taken by force. One being called by Jesus as a command to us, and the other considered a sin. Socialist redistribution is clearly taken, taking by force against one's will, which looks a lot more like stealing than charity. Now, some people would argue that that's why they support democratic socialism. Because if we vote to give more in taxes, then that is our choice, which is true. But most people, when voting for socialist policies, aren't voting to increase their own taxes, or at least not only their own taxes, but the taxes of other people, namely the wealthy, and usually far more than they're voting to increase their own taxes. People will point to the example of the disciples living in a socialist way after Jesus ascended into heaven and they were beginning their ministries when it says in the Bible that they all lived together, contributing what they could and taking what they needed. That is not socialism. That is living as a family. My husband is the main breadwinner in our family and brings home the majority of our income. But my kids and I still eat and are clothed and have what we need. And I contribute to our home by doing what I can do, caring for and educating the kids, cooking meals and cleaning and running errands and bringing in extra income where I can. We work together as a family, supplying all of our family's needs as each of us as individuals can and taking what we need. In the situation with the disciples, that is each individual being there by choice, not having someone in government control forcing them to live there in any way. The main point in all of this is that in order to increase our understanding, we must recognize the filters with which we see the world. We all have them. It doesn't mean we are bad or ignorant or foolish. Every person who has ever walked the earth has filters with which they see things based on their life experiences, how they were raised, the culture they grew up in, and about a million other factors. Where we become foolish is when we take a step into arrogance. When we say that certain things that are crystal clear to us should have been crystal clear to people who lived 500, 200, or even 50 years ago, when we judge those people according to today's standards. Where we become foolish is when we refuse to recognize that we are seeing the world through a particular lens, and that that lens might be blinding us to certain realities we may not understand. There is a lot of talking happening in the world today. We have no shortage of opinions, that is for sure. But what we desperately have a shortage of is listening. People who like to pull Bible verses off Google to prove their point about how the Bible is outdated or misogynistic or justifies atrocities aren't willing to actually listen to the actual meanings behind the verses. They have made up their mind that religion is bad and they are simply seeking confirmation. But Christians are not off the hook either on this. Far too many Christians today are caught up in the cultural norms, also perfectly willing to cherry pick the parts of the Bible they like that sound pretty while ignoring the ones that are inconvenient, the ones that will get them ostracized by their coffeehouse friends, or the ones that force us to take a hard look at ourselves and maybe start doing or stop doing something that is difficult for us. There are a lot of things the Bible tells us are immoral that are commonly practiced by our society and accepted as fine. It is not our job to judge people, but it is our job to personally live according to the laws and commands God has given us. It is really important for each of us to understand the cultural blinders we wear, to understand the lens through which we view the world. So many Westerners are currently viewing the world through a lens that says that equality of outcomes is the only indicator of a truly just society, the only indicator of real freedom and prosperity and joy. But this is not true. People are not all the same. 
We are not made to be all the same. It is so ironic that the very people pushing for inclusivity are also pushing for uniformity. It is so ironic that as our society moves towards supposed progress, what we are doing is actively working to stamp out the differences among people that make our culture function well, make it interesting, and really make it great. Uniformity of outcome will never be achieved, and the people pushing for it know this. They have chosen a desired conclusion that can never be achieved so that they can always have something to fight for. But it isn't a worthy fight. This obsession with uniformity of outcome is, I believe, one of the defining characteristics of our current culture. It affects every corner of our lives and is at the heart of nearly all of our national discussions. But it is severely flawed. It is unrealistic and it causes us to ignore too many realities about who we are as human beings. We'll be right back with our three questions of the week. All right, so our first question today comes from Kurt. He says, in Christianity, all men are created in the image of God. That being said, why should we not strive toward equity and beneficial outcomes for everyone, lifting up all God's people? So yes, all men are created in the image of God. And that phrase, by the way, does include women. Um, so all human beings are created in the image of God. So why should we not strive toward equity and beneficial outcomes for everyone, lifting up all of God's people? Well, I actually disagree with the notion that beneficial outcomes and lifting up all of God's people is that the way that we do that is to achieve equity. I disagree with that. And that is really what I've been trying to hammer home over the last few weeks is this idea is, and this question just demonstrates it, that it is so ingrained in our society that we believe that equity is and should be the ultimate goal. That equity and having everybody be equal is what is beneficial and is what is lifting people up. And I just disagree with that. I don't think that that is the case. I do believe that we should focus on what can have beneficial outcomes for everyone. I do believe in lifting up all of God's people. I just don't think that the way that we do that is through um, focusing so much on equity. Okay, I think that you might have a woman, for example, who in her life, her dream is to become the CEO of a really, you know, major company. And for her, that is a beneficial outcome. But then you might have another woman who for her, the beneficial outcome and her feeling lifted up is to be able to dedicate her life to being a mom to, you know, a big family or to being a wife or to being someone who, you know, does a lot of charity work and volunteers in a church while the husband is the breadwinner in the family. I think that I mean, for some people, you know, them being lifted up is simply having a home to live in, you know, being, being lifted out of homelessness or lifting out of poverty, which is something that, of course, we need to strive to to help people do that. But again, I just disagree with the premise and with this assumption that the only way to do that is through government intervention. The only way to do that is through you know, government programs and welfare and food stamps and all of those things. I think that there are other ways to do that, that will actually, actually benefit people that will actually, you know, teach people a skill, teach people something, teach people how to support themselves, how to get a job, how to keep a job, how to make good choices so that they can take care of themselves, not just, you know, throw money at them, and say, oh, they're incapable of taking care of themselves. You know, you're not good enough. You're not capable to take care of yourself. So we have to take care of you, you know, for you. That I do not believe is lifting people up. 
I don't believe that that is a way that we lift people up. I think that that is actually keeping people down. I think that when we incentivize people to, and I know that this is not always the case and not everyone on government assistance falls into this category. Some people really truly you know, go through hard times and they just use that to get through it. So I don't want to sound like I'm lumping everybody into this category or I'm suggesting that everybody who's on government assistance is, you know, lazy or making bad choices. I am not suggesting that at all. I just disagree with the notion that that is the only way that we can help people. I disagree with this premise that we have all fallen into, this this trap that I think we've all fallen into that says that the only way that we can actually benefit people and lift people up is to make them all equal. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that people are different. People are made different. People have different desires. They have different wants and different priorities in their life. And so we need to focus. We need, we need to focus on that and we need to allow for that when we're having this discussion. All right. Question number two comes from Carl. When is mercy and compassion more important than justice? That is a really good question. And that is something that I think our culture right now actually really needs to have a conversation about. Um, I know that one of the big topics that people talk about, one of the issues is the whole idea of criminal justice reform. And there are a lot of people who I think make you know, decent arguments where they talk about people who are in jail, who are maybe in jail for victimless crimes, um, you know, things like drug abuse or whatnot. And and they say, look, you know, how can we rehabilitate these people? How can we get them out of jail? Maybe jail isn't the best place for them. You know, I, I would love to see as many people as possible who fall into, you know, the prison system, who fall into these, you know, into these really dire situations. I would, of course, I would love to see as many people as possible rehabilitated, lifted out of those situations so that they can, you know, go out into the world and make something of themselves and do something really well. I actually just saw a story today, just a couple of hours ago, about a man, and I, I would have to pull it up to look at the details, but there was a man who spent half of his adult life in prison and he just got his his degree. He went to, to a university and he, he got his degree and he totally changed his life and turned it around. I think that's amazing. And I think that people like that need to be lifted up and need to be put out there so that they can inspire others. I think that's really a great thing. All of that being said, justice does matter. Justice is important. And I, I kind of touched on this actually a little bit last week where I, we were talking, it was, there was a question about, um, you know, laws about keeping murderers in jail. And I kind of talked about like the two reasons. Okay. Yes. One reason that we put people in jail is to protect society. Okay. This person is dangerous. This person, you know, if they like, if you have somebody who is a child molester and they've molested a bunch of children and we keep them in jail so that we protect the children so that that person can't get out and victimize more children. But Justice does matter. And I think that if we lose sight of that, we are going to find ourselves in a situation when there, where there are a lot of problems, okay? Because when a society feels, when people in a society feel as though there is no justice for somebody victimizing them, when they feel like, okay, this person molested me when I was a child, this person raped me, this person, you know, burned down my business or robbed me or beat me up or any of these things, okay? There, there does need to be some justice. There does need to be, okay, there needs to be a punishment for that. Not just because we want to keep other people safe, but because we need to say as a society that every individual human being has value. And I think sometimes like, you know, 
in the discussion of criminal justice reform, we just have to be careful that we are not forgetting the victims in these conversations. We have to be careful that in our focus on, okay, what is justice and what is mercy and what is compassion for the people who committed these, you know, these crimes, we cannot lose sight of, okay, but what is mercy and compassion and justice for the victims as well, okay? Because if a woman is raped, for instance, I mean, in my view, other than murder, that is, you know, murder, rape, and child molestation are the three absolute worst things that, you, that can be done to a human being. And when you when that happens to somebody, if you just say, oh, okay, I mean, and, and we, we saw this, right? Like the whole, you know, Me Too movement, uh, you know, this is what this is all about, is that when you are not having consequences for things being done, then you are sending a message that, you know, the victim of that crime is not worthy of justice. The victim of that crime is not worth the mercy and the compassion to say, hey, you know, what happened to you matters. It matters that you were raped or abused or kidnapped or whatever, whatever the, the crime may be. It matters that that happened to you. It matters that you are now going to the rest of your life be impacted by this crime that was committed against you. And so I think that, you know, it, it is a it's a conversation. It is not something that I have the, you know, black and white answer to like, oh, this is the answer to that. It definitely is a conversation. But I do think that that is something that we we have to, you know, constantly work to find that balance between having mercy and having compassion, but also understanding that justice is a form of mercy and compassion for the victims of the crime. All right. Question number three comes from Amy. In light of the fact that progressive policies often seem to come against the ideas of freedom of religion, is it possible in America to achieve equity while still having freedom of religion? Um, so that's a really good question. So progressive policies often seem to come against the ideas of freedom of religion. I definitely think that that is correct. Um, just looking over the last year at some of the COVID lockdown policies, for example, I mean, this has been a big topic of conversation is how these policies have affected churches, how they have really, you know, kind of crossed that line between, you know, we, we hear progressives talk all the time about how much they want separation of church and state. And yet they definitely did not hesitate when the time came for them to say like, hey, we need to shut down your churches and prevent you from practicing your religion the way that you choose to, you know, because of this situation, this COVID situation. And I mean, for, for the first time, probably in, I mean, definitely in the history of the country, churches in America on Easter Sunday last year, which is the most, you know, important religious day for, for the Christian faith, churches in America sat empty. And that was just absolutely insane. So you, you've got policies like that, obviously policies on, you know, issues like abortion, uh, come to mind as progressive policies, some of the LGBTQ issues, you know, things like should, you know, bakers and wedding photographers and wedding venues be forced to, you know, provide services to an LGBT wedding if they if they are if that goes against their religious beliefs. I mean, all of these are definitely questions where progressive policies and religious beliefs do kind of come up against each other. So when you're looking at the fact that these policies do come up against each other, is it possible in America to achieve equity while still having freedom of religion? Um, I don't think so. I don't think it is because I think that when you look at the people who are trying to, to achieve equity, which again, for you know the million time equity by their definition is 
sameness is uniformity of outcome is everybody being exactly in the same situation. Um, you cannot achieve that. You simply cannot achieve that while having freedom of anything, not freedom of religion, not freedom to make your own life choices about what career you want to do or whether or not you want to be a stay at home mom or whether or not you want to, you know, work full time or part time or whatnot. Um, there just simply is not room for both a focus on equity and equality of outcome and uniformity and sameness and all of that along with freedom. And I think that that is really what all of this is. And and one of the reasons why I've actually dedicated three entire episodes to this topic is because I do think that it is that important. I do think that the goal of achieving equity is completely contradictory to the ideas and the philosophy of living in a free society. It's it's completely antithetical to the to the ideas of freedom and people being able to make their own choices over their own lives. This is why in socialist countries, there is so much government control. There is so much, I mean, and again, it it often, if not always, goes and slides into communism, slides into dictatorships, slides into totalitarianism. I mean, it, it has happened so many times. And I think that for people who have really spent time studying history and studying economics and, you know, taking a look at all of that and seeing, you know, how often, I mean, we see all the time people who have moved to America from some of these current socialist countries like Venezuela and Cuba, just those two particular ones come to mind because they're, you know, the, the obviously the ones that are in the most dire situations right now. But, you know, even people who have moved here from Russia, who have moved here from back when there was an East Germany, when they moved, you know, when they moved from there. I mean, I, I, I want to ask my fellow Americans when we are taking a look at this, like nobody is fleeing free market capitalist societies like the United States of America to move to Cuba, to move to Venezuela, to move to, you know, people were trying to always cross over that wall from East Berlin to West Berlin. Okay. Nobody was ever trying to go the other way. And that is just something that like always gets to me is, you know, when people are fleeing from the countries where these, you know, these philosophies are put into place and they're fleeing away from them and they're fleeing towards the countries like the United States with, you know, yes, with all of our income inequality and, you know, people who are struggling, but they're fleeing to our country. Why are they doing that? They are doing that because in America, we have freedom, okay? And you have the freedom in this country that if you work hard and you make good choices, you can create a good life for yourself. Maybe you're not going to ever be a millionaire. Maybe you're never, you know, you're never going to be rich. You're never going to be in that top 1%, but you can still make a decent life for yourself. Whereas in a lot of these other countries, that option, that freedom, that possibility is just simply not there. I mean, in communist China, they are Christian. Christianity is not allowed. So that's another really good, you know, example. If you want to take a look at this is, you know, China is another communist country. Christian Christians are persecuted. Uh, Muslims are persecuted. People of faith are persecuted in China because they communism and religion just simply do not they, they do not match. French Revolution. Again, you can see it very, very clearly. The goal of the French Revolution was equality. It was for everybody to be equal. And one of the things that was really a big, you know, hallmark of the French Revolution was the fact that they had to completely stamp out religion. They had they had to 
just eliminate it from the society. Um, I mean, we could just see it time and time and time again throughout history where, you know, absolutely freedom of religion is actually the biggest threat to big government. Because when people have the freedom to practice the religion that they want, then they form communities, they form churches. When you can rely on your church, when you can rely on your community, when you can rely on your Christian family, then you don't need to rely on the government. Um, I know that a lot of faiths have this. You know, I know the Jewish faith in their communities, you know, they help each other out. When someone is struggling, when someone gets laid off, when someone's in need, they come together and they help each other out. And when you do that, when people do that, then they don't need the government. They don't need to rely on the government. So religion is actually a huge threat to big government and big government knows that. And that is why throughout history, over and over again, the bigger the government gets, the more they try to crack down on religion. So that's a really long answer to that question, but really what it comes down to is no, uh, there, it is not possible to achieve equity. It is not possible to have socialism. It is not possible to have any of these policies while still enjoying freedom of religion. So if you enjoy your freedom of religion, then you need to take a really good hard look at these policies. Thank you for taking a moment out of your day to talk about how our obsession with equity is affecting our interpretation of biblical teachings. I will be back next week with another deep dive into issues affecting American life from the perspective of just an American. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps each and every week. Also, please share this episode with a family member or a friend so we can help spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at JJAnAmerican. You can also message the show by sending an email to jj at imjustanamerican.com or visiting our locals page at imjustanamerican.locals.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at imjustanamerican. This episode was produced and edited by Brian White. Music for this episode was written and performed by Michael Beatty.